Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode 108, Maggie Whitlin, Meta-Evidence and Preliminary Injunctions. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Today on Excited Utterance, we have another returning guest. Maggie Whitlin, an associate professor of law at Fordham University School of Law, joins us to discuss her recent article just published in the UC Irvine Law Review. The paper entitled Meta-Evidence and Preliminary Injunctions, takes a look at evidence law outside of its traditional realm at the trial stage of adjudication. Instead, the paper shifts its focus to the preliminary injunction phase, examining what evidence law looks like during that pre-trial procedural phase, and introducing a new concept, what Maggie calls meta-evidence, along the way. Now, with that preview, you can tell that there is a ton to unpack in Maggie's article. But the good news is, of course, those who know Maggie know she is a fantastic expositor of her scholarship and her ideas. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with her today, and I trust you'll enjoy this episode as well. Maggie, welcome back to Excited Utterance. Hi, Alex. I'm thrilled to be back here. Thanks for having me. So today we're talking about evidence law and preliminary injunctions, something of an evidence and a civ pro crossover, if you will. Now, before we dive into the technical aspects of that conversation, first, I'm just kind of curious, what led you to the topic generally? Okay, so I came to this project through a conversation between uh, two of our nation's most sober and meticulous legal figures, namely uh, Rudy Giuliani and Judge Janine Pirro. Right, so, okay, so this is back in 2017. Um, then President Trump had just instituted his travel ban prohibiting people from certain countries from entering the United States. Rudy Giuliani, who was not uh, Trump's lawyer yet at that point, goes on Judge Janine's show on Fox News. Uh, she asks him how the president chose the countries for the ban. And Giuliani responds that when he, the president, quote, first announced it, he said, Muslim ban. He called me up. He said, put a commission together. Show me the right way to do it legally. Okay, so as soon as this ban's announced, states and human rights organizations begin seeking preliminary injunctions against the ban, uh, trying to stop it from being enforced. Courts began granting those preliminary injunctions. And I saw in one of these decisions that the court had cited this interview with Giuliani as evidence that President Trump's intent in choosing the countries was not primarily to advance national security, uh, but rather to exclude Muslims. And while that conclusion seemed like obviously correct based on everything Trump had said during his campaign, I was actually troubled by the use of the Giuliani interview because uh, it seemed like hearsay to me. A pretty bad hearsay at that, right? You've got Rudy Giuliani speaking in this off-the-cuff way on TV, uh, no indicia of reliability, and it's being used for the truth, right? That Donald Trump actually told him to figure out how to do a Muslim ban. But despite the usual prohibition on hearsay, courts were just considering this evidence without objection. And I was wondering why. So I decided to look into whether the federal rules of evidence apply at the preliminary injunction stage, and so wrote this paper. Fantastic. What an inception story, perhaps one of the best that I've heard so far. 
and of course today, because we're talking about preliminary injunctions, it might be good to set the stage and get our listeners up to speed on what exactly a preliminary injunction is, since we're venturing a little bit far afield from kind of the core evidence world. So remind us, Maggie, what's a preliminary injunction? Okay, great. Yeah, so uh, first for the throngs of non-lawyers who listen to excited utterance, an injunction is a court order directing a party to do something or not to do something. A company is like pouring toxic chemicals in a river. An injunction might order them to stop doing that. And if you're a plaintiff seeking a permanent injunction, uh, you have to prove at trial that you merit an injunction. But of course, trials take a long time. You have to go through months or years of discovery and other pretrial litigation. And during that time, if there's no court order in place, the defendant can keep doing what it's doing, right? Pouring chemicals in the river or what have you. So if a plaintiff believes that the defendant's actions will cause her irreparable harm during that time, meaning she'll suffer irreparable harm before she can get a decision on the merits of her case at trial, she can seek a preliminary injunction. So that's an order that gives her temporary injunctive relief pending a final judgment. And that might not sound like that big a deal, right? Because it's a temporary order, but preliminary injunctions can be a very big deal. It's like sometimes timing is really important to a case. Like if you're looking to prevent your former employee from working for a competitor and you don't get a preliminary injunction, uh, that employee is going to share whatever information you don't want him to share before trial. Also, a preliminary injunction is probably pretty predictive of what a judge is going to do at trial, so it can have a huge effect on settlement discussions. So preliminary injunctions are really important orders. So you began today uh, responding to my first question discussing Trump and Giuliani and the, the Muslim ban case. Um, it seems to me from reading your paper that there are some very high profile cases where there have been some curious evidentiary practices when it comes to preliminary injunctions. So perhaps in addition to the Muslim ban case, tell us about these high profile cases that kind of serve as animating examples for what we're gonna get into today. Right. Okay. So as I did mention the Trump case, right, where this apparent hearsay was considered without acknowledging any problem. The other one that I focused on in the piece is the suit filed by a trans teenager, Gavin Grimm, who wanted a preliminary injunction ordering his school to allow him to use the boys' bathroom. So with the motion, he filed this declaration saying that his psychologist had diagnosed him with gender dysphoria and said he should live his life as a boy in all respects. The district court refused to credit that, saying that it was hearsay. The psychologist wasn't there submitting her own declaration. This was all secondhand. And the court denied Grimm's motion. But then the Fourth Circuit reversed on appeal. One major part of its ruling was that preliminary injunction motions are governed by less strict rules of evidence than trials are, and courts can consider hearsay and other normally inadmissible evidence when ruling on these motions. So the Fourth Circuit said the trial court was wrong to use the normal rules to disregard this statement from Grimm's psychologist. And Maggie, kind of zooming out for a second, would you say that these two cases that you've mentioned so far are representative of how courts are applying evidence law at preliminary injunction hearings? Well, they're certainly not atypical, right? So as the Fourth Circuit noted in its opinion in the Grimm case, every federal court of appeals to consider the issue has concluded that the rule against hearsay doesn't apply at preliminary injunction hearings. And so sometimes parties don't even challenge the admissibility of evidence at the preliminary injunction stage. 
And sometimes they do when courts deny their motions and hear the evidence and say that the admissibility of the evidence under the rules goes to weight, not admissibility of evidence at the preliminary injunction stage. That's not a full representation of practice. A number of judges at least entertain evidentiary objections, although they tend to be more lenient with their rulings at the preliminary injunction stage, uh, particularly if any problems with the evidence could be fixed at trial. And there are trial judges who pretty rigorously enforce the rules at preliminary injunction hearings, uh, particularly if they run the hearing a bit more like a trial. So on the ground, practice varies a lot. But the courts of appeals have generally said that at least the rule against hearsay doesn't apply. And some have said or suggested that the other rules of evidence don't apply as well. Okay, so courts essentially disregarding, or at least in part disregarding, the federal rules of evidence in these proceedings. To your mind, kind of thinking normatively here, is that a justifiable move? So I don't really think so. I mean, there are a few ways you can approach the question of whether this is justified, right? From the text of the rules, the history of equity and preliminary injunctions, and also policy, right? So I think the text of the rules indicates that they should apply. Uh, the federal rules of evidence say they apply to proceedings before United States district courts, and that would include preliminary injunction proceedings. There are some enumerated exceptions in the rule where the rules of evidence don't apply, and that includes a category for miscellaneous proceedings like getting a search warrant, sentencing, setting bail, a few others. And while you could certainly make the argument that preliminary injunctions fall under that miscellaneous proceedings exception, it doesn't seem to me like the best reading of that rule because all of those miscellaneous proceedings are criminal, whereas uh, preliminary injunctions are civil, so it doesn't seem like they quite belong. Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 43C does allow courts to consider affidavits and depositions when ruling on a motion. So I do think that specific rule overrides the rule against hearsay within that narrow category. So that's why, like in the Gavin Grimm case, the court could clearly rely on Gavin Grimm's affidavit as evidence of his own experience, things that he had personal knowledge of. Okay, so that's the text. You know, the rules apply to proceedings before district courts. The preliminary injunction is a proceeding before district courts. It doesn't seem to fall under any exception, so the rules would apply. One point a lot of people raised when I was starting this project was, okay, well, preliminary injunctions are an equitable remedy. Equity is characterized by discretion. So shouldn't courts be able to have discretion as to what evidence to consider? I don't think that's exactly right. So historically, judges sitting in equity were governed by evidentiary rules. And at least since the mid 18th century, the rules of evidence at equity appear to have been largely the same as the rules at law. There were definitely differences, like at equity, testimony was taken in secret by a written interrogatories instead of live in open court. But they considered that to be more of a difference in the manner of taking evidence than a difference in the rules of evidence. As for the rule against hearsay specifically, that was relatively late to develop. It seems to not have applied with real rigor in either law or equity during most of their separate existences. There was some additional flexibility to equity in the preliminary injunction context, but that was a really a relaxation of the rules, not like a complete abandonment of them. So I don't think history very clearly points in one direction or the other with respect to whether the rules should apply. Well, let me follow up on this policy point, because I'm really interested kind of on the normative aspects of this particular conversation. And what do you see as the benefits and the drawbacks of applying the rules to preliminary injunctions? 
the benefits of applying the rules are pretty much the same benefits that lead us to having rules in the first place. Like having rules of evidence creates predictability about what evidence will be admissible, which allows lawyers to streamline case preparation. It facilitates settlement discussions. Also, rules force judges to justify their evidentiary decisions, which has benefits in itself. It makes judges really think about what the evidence properly tends to prove and what it's not being admitted to prove. So they might use the evidence in a more precise and correct way. And while judges can't can't unsee evidence that they've decided is inadmissible. By stating that evidence is inadmissible and are articulating reasons why it should be disregarded, they might actually factor the evidence in less or not at all. As for drawbacks, uh, there are two main arguments courts cite for having a relaxed evidentiary regime at the preliminary injunction phase. First, they talk about the limited purpose of a preliminary injunction, which is to preserve the status quo until trial. I've already mentioned one reason that I disagree with that, which is that preliminary injunctions are hugely important and sometimes can effectively resolve the whole case. Also, often there's no peaceable status quo that they're trying to preserve. Like, for example, take the Supreme Court case, uh, University of Texas versus Kamenish, which is the case that discussed having less formal procedures at the preliminary injunction phase. So in that case, a deaf student wanted a sign language interpreter for his college classes. So the status quo there was Walter Kamenish being disadvantaged in class, and he sought a preliminary injunction to disrupt that status quo. So to the extent that courts are suggesting there are these are like in any way not a big deal, I think that's a big mistake. The stronger argument for not applying the rules is that these motions are decided under tight time constraints. The court needs to figure out how to prevent irreparable harm on an expedited basis. Since time is tight, litigants might not be able to discover all of the relevant admissible evidence that they would be able to discover before trial in time for the preliminary injunction hearing. So normally one major benefit of the rules is that they force parties to find and produce the best evidence available, and that can aid in truth-seeking. But at the preliminary injunction stage, even parties with meritorious cases might not be able to produce high-quality evidence. So instead of forcing them to submit better evidence, applying the rules could force them to submit no evidence. And that can inhibit truth-seeking and frustrate the aim of preventing irreparable harm. So that's, I think, the stronger argument against applying the rules. Now, in critiquing kind of the current practice of evidence law at preliminary hearings, you introduce the concept of so-called meta-evidence. So what is meta-evidence? Okay, great. So this is like the insight I'm most excited about with respect to this piece. So I define meta-evidence as evidence of what evidence will be introduced at trial. Okay, so why do we have meta-evidence in a preliminary injunction proceeding? The Supreme Court has prescribed this four-part test for courts to use when deciding whether to grant a preliminary injunction. The first factor, uh, which is often the real point of contention in cases, is likelihood of success on the merits. The movement has to show that they're likely to win at trial. So that's a different question from whether the plaintiff would succeed on the evidence presented right here, right now. And it's a different question from whether the plaintiff like actually deserves to win at trial. Instead, it's a prediction of who's going to win at trial. So when the plaintiff presents evidence of likelihood of success on the merits, he's presenting evidence of what evidence will be presented at trial. In other words, meta-evidence. 
Preliminary injunctions, I think, are not the only place where you can find meta-evidence. So for example, like on a motion for summary judgment, the parties present evidence they'll be able to introduce at trial so the court can decide whether the case should even go to trial or whether a reasonable fact finder could come to only one decision so a trial would be futile. I think that even the allegations in a complaint can be considered a sort of meta-evidence because under Rule 11, a lawyer can present factual contentions only if after a reasonable inquiry, she believes the contentions have or are likely to have evidentiary support. So the fact that the allegation is in the complaint tends to show that it will be supported at trial. So those are some other examples, I think, of meta-evidence outside the preliminary injunction context. It's a really fascinating concept, Maggie. And now I'm curious, how does meta-evidence, this type of evidence that you just identified, how does it change the admissibility calculus during these preliminary injunction proceedings? Yeah, so um, as every avid, excited utterance listener knows, right, the federal rules of evidence exclude evidence that's being used for an improper purpose. Evidence of an out-of-court statement is hearsay, only if it's being used to prove the truth of the matter asserted. If it's used for some other purpose, like to show that someone else heard the out-of-court statement and it made them angry, then it's not hearsay. And it's admissible if it's relevant and not excluded by some other rule. So for meta-evidence, if an out-of-court statement is being used not for the truth, uh, but only to show that the person who made the out-of-court statement could be a witness at trial and like say the same thing at trial, then it's not hearsay. So here's the example I use. So say we have a trademark suit between a pharmaceutical company that makes a drug called Flexor and another company that makes a drug called Lexor. And to prove the doctors are confusing Flexor and Lexor, a manager at the Flexor company submits an affidavit saying, five of my salespeople have told me that doctors have called them asking how much Lexor costs. Are those statements within the affidavit hearsay? Well, no. They're being introduced to show uh, not that these doctors did, in fact, call confused, but rather that there are a bunch of salespeople out there who could come to a future trial and testify to the calls. And that's a non-hearsay use. The concept of meta-evidence, I think, has the most pull for hearsay in situations like that. But I think it could be used for expert testimony as well. Expert testimony has to meet the reliability criteria set out in Daubert and Rule 702. But in the case where a party would introduce expert testimony relevant to the merits at trial, at the preliminary injunction stage, the party could introduce maybe a pilot study. Uh, and if that study is reliable as a predictor for what a future study will find, like if it's the kind of thing maybe a scientist could use to get funding, then that pilot study could be introduced at the preliminary injunction phase under the rules. So viewing evidence as meta-evidence is not going to get everything in. Some evidence will still be inadmissible under the rules, even when it's used for that purpose. And also likelihood of success on the merits isn't the only factor the plaintiff has to establish at the preliminary injunction stage. The plaintiff has to also show, for example, that if they don't get the preliminary injunction, they'll suffer irreparable harm. That's not a question of what they'll be able to prove at trial. They have to show like right now at the preliminary injunction hearing that they will suffer irreparable harm without the relief they're asking for. So evidence introduced on that point isn't meta-evidence and under the rules uh, would be evaluated just like normal evidence. Great, so with that foundation now kind of behind us, let's turn to your paper's two normative proposals for improving evidentiary practices 
with respect to preliminary injunctions. Now, the first actually calls for the application of the federal rules of evidence, at least to a modest extent, let's call it. So tell us about your first proposal in this paper. Right. So as I mentioned, the most persuasive reason for not applying the rules at trial is that the best evidence the parties have could be excluded. But the meta-evidence idea seriously mitigates that concern. A lot of evidence that appears inadmissible at first glance will actually be admissible if that evidence is properly viewed as meta-evidence. Evidence that looks like inadmissible hearsay might not actually be hearsay. Okay, so my first proposal is that courts apply the rules at preliminary injunction hearings, and here's why. The central goal of a preliminary injunction, um, and John Lubsdorf at Rutgers has a great classic article on this, is to minimize the expected irreparable injury caused by errors stemming from this condensed timeline. An evidentiary regime will minimize the probable irreparable loss of rights if it facilitates accurate fact-finding. Okay, so what regime uh, facilitates accurate fact-finding? Personally, I am very unsure, but I do know what the rulemakers believed facilitates truth-seeking, which is the rules, right? Um, and they applied the rules to bench trials as well as to jury trials, and judges who do decide these motions do display at least some of the same like cognitive biases as juries that lead the rulemakers to create these rules. So if we take this assumption as a given, right, the rules facilitate truth-seeking, any departure from that should be justified on the grounds that these specific circumstances indicate the rules are unsuitable. Since meta-evidence allows so much evidence to be admitted, I don't think we have a very broad problem here. However, we do still have some problem. Some evidence that's probative and the best a party can do will still be excluded if we apply the rules with full force. So I do think there should be an escape hatch here. I think the rulemakers should add a rule that would allow otherwise inadmissible evidence in at the preliminary injunction stage if it's the best a party can do under the tight timeline, the evidence is sufficiently trustworthy given the time constraints, and the evidence won't unduly prejudice the other party. So I think that exception rule would narrowly target this remaining problem. The rules would generally apply, viewing much of the evidence as meta-evidence would soften their application, and where it really doesn't make sense to apply the rules, the court would have it out. All right, so that's a, a wonderful proposal, Maggie, but what if it doesn't work? You also propose a second path forward that also relies on meta-evidence that might be something of a fallback plan. Is that right? Yeah, it is. So, you know, my first suggestion I like, but I'm a little pessimistic that courts and the rulemakers are actually going to buy it. I, th I think that ship may have sailed. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the idea of meta evidence has to go to waste. Uh, so I have this like second, somewhat less ambitious proposal, and it's one that courts can do on their own. When a party presents evidence on likelihood of success on the merits, a judge should ask herself, how likely is it that this party will be able to present admissible evidence on this point at trial, and how credible will that evidence be? If the evidence is in admissible form, unless there's some reason to believe it won't be available later on, I think the likelihood is very high that it will be uh, admissible. But as for inadmissible evidence, the courts should consider whether it points to admissible evidence and how probative that admissible evidence will be. So thinking about this evidence as meta-evidence allows the court to more accurately determine the probative value of the evidence when deciding how heavily to weigh it in its preliminary injunction decision. So let's bring these two proposals to life by returning to those high-profile cases 
that we discussed at the top of the interview. Would your proposals change the outcome there? For example, let's take the Trump travel ban case. What difference would your proposals perhaps make in that particular case? So yeah, I don't think it would have made much of a difference in the outcome. This was a drop in the bucket in terms of evidence that then President Trump was trying to exclude Muslims with the travel ban. And as you'll recall, the Supreme Court held the orders were lawful uh, anyway. But it does make a difference in terms of how a court would use the Giuliani statement. So it would not be direct proof of President Trump's animus. If we're looking at likelihood of success on the merits and applying the rule, it's proof that this guy, Rudy Giuliani, could show up at trial and testify to what the president told him. If a court has reason to believe that he's unlikely to repeat this at trial or a fact finder is very unlikely to believe him, then the statement should carry less weight. If we're not applying the rules, we can consider that this tends to show animus on President Trump's part, but only to the extent that that suggests that there's going to be additional admissible evidence on point at trial. Okay, now my first proposal to apply the rules uh, might seem to do more work in Gavin Grimm's case. That proposal really might exclude the statement in his affidavit that his psychologist had diagnosed him with gender dysphoria uh, to the extent that it's being used to show that he would suffer irreparable harm if he couldn't use the boys' room. So that evidence on irreparable harm isn't meta-evidence. But Grimm actually came armed with alternative evidence on exactly that point. He had a declaration from a psychologist who had been hired for the case, and that expert said that he met the criteria for gender dysphoria and should live as a boy in all aspects of his life. So it seems that his lawyers anticipated that they would reasonably need that sort of evidence to succeed on their preliminary injunction motion. So I don't think my proposal would be unduly burdensome in a case like his. Well, Maggie, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I've immensely enjoyed it. And as a veteran of Excited Utterance, I know that you know that we end every interview with kind of the same classic question. So I'm going to give it to you now. What's next for the literature? What type of paper in this space might shed additional insight on this issue? Okay, so there's so much that one could do with this. I think it'd be really interesting to do a more comprehensive empirical study on evidentiary practices at preliminary injunction hearings. I spoke with a few for this paper, but it was really more of like a reality check than a systematic inquiry. A scholar could also look at a lawyer's beliefs and expectations about evidence at preliminary injunction hearings, or whether the practice varies by case type, right? Like a huge environmental lawsuit might raise different issues from a case about whether to enforce a former employee's non-compete clause. And of course, this paper focuses on federal courts. It would be really interesting to look at state court practice as well. I think it'd be also be cool to apply the meta-evidence idea to other areas within litigation. So James Duane at Regent has a great paper talking about a related idea in the summary judgment context. But I'm definitely intrigued by this idea of viewing things that aren't technically evidence, like allegations in a complaint, through an evidentiary lens. So that could be a fun path as well. So like aspiring evidence scholars, you have many opportunities to take this forward. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Maggie. This has been a really enjoyable conversation, and it's been wonderful having you back on the show. Thank you, Alex. Always a pleasure to talk with you and to be on Excited Utterance. So as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, I really enjoyed this conversation with Maggie. I found her paper to be incisive, thought-provoking, and really perhaps demonstrative of a developing trend in evidence law today. In fact, as I think back and reflect on the two episodes I've hosted so far this fall on Excited Utterance, there's some clear connective tissue between both pieces. Of course, as we just heard today, Maggie's paper is examining evidence law in a non-traditional setting. 
She's examining, you know, what's the best way to apply evidentiary practices, not at the trial stage of adjudication, but rather, of course, in preliminary hearings. But that's rather curious, right, that focus, because it was only two weeks ago that Professor Menka Sinha from the University of Maryland Carey School of Law joined us to discuss her great new article, Junk Science at Sentencing, which of course is forthcoming in the GW Law Review. And kind of running parallel to Maggie's comments today regarding the optimization of preliminary hearings by incorporating insights from evidence law, Professor Sinha advocated for incorporating evidentiary insights into the sentencing phase of a trial. Again, perhaps suggesting that the federal rules of evidence should have a broader reach. Now, of course, as a formal matter, we know that the federal rules of evidence typically don't extend beyond the trial phase. I mean, by its own terms, right? We can head to Federal Rule of Evidence 1101, where we see that the rules are just not applicable in most pretrial proceedings or during sentencing hearings. But I think it's important to emphasize something, and this is something that we see both in Maggie's paper today and in Professor Sinha's paper from two weeks ago. Just because, as a formal matter, the federal rules of evidence don't apply in these disparate contexts, that doesn't necessarily imply that evidence law wouldn't be productive or useful in those different spaces. Rather, again, it simply means that the federal rules of evidence are not controlling. But I think, to emphasize this point, we should not take that as an admonition that these should be evidence-free zones, that there should be no evidence law, instead it should just be a judicial free-for-all. Instead, the inapplicability of the federal rules of evidence opens up a unique opportunity where evidence law can be contoured specifically to the particular needs, say, of a preliminary injunction hearing or the particular needs of a sentencing hearing. So, to my mind, these areas where the federal rules of evidence don't formally apply should not be seen as vacuums, just black holes where no evidence law exists. Instead, I think the better view is to look at these spaces as pockets of the former common law approach to evidence law, a place where broad judicial discretion remains, and courts have the authority to implement reforms just like the ones recommended by Maggie and Mainka. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, the University of Arkansas School of Law, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The producer of Excited Utterance is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host today, Alex Nunn, and I do hope you'll join us next time when we explore another piece in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.